I'm here today with Nick Kirridge, who alongside Kevin Murphy is one of the two UK equity managers in the Schroeder Managed Fund. Nick, you said in the past that a frothy market is not a natural environment for, for a value manager. How are you finding the current environment? It's a good question. Um, it is less favourable in frothy markets. Uh, current markets are more elevated than we've seen uh, in recent years, but I don't think we're quite yet at the frothy stage. If you, if you think back to other frothy periods per se, um, you know, 1999, 2000, 2006, beginning of 2007, those are periods in which we saw you know, some quite manic behaviour, a lot of bids for companies, a lot of M&A, very, very high valuations. Um, we're not quite there yet, uh, in all honesty. Average valuations are a bit lower, and there are still some opportunities. And actually, the interesting thing is, is that whilst many companies have bounced very, very significantly off their lows of 2009, actually, um, they were so low in 2009 that several of those businesses are, are not yet expensive or frothy, and we're still very much benefiting from people coming round to several of those good investments, good companies we were able to buy uh, on the cheap. And they're not at the elevated levels that might indicate a risk to us at this point, albeit we are headed in that direction. And how are you able to find opportunities when the market is as frothy as it currently is? I think that's something that we consider quite a lot. You know, this idea of are there enough opportunities to rotate the portfolio in the way that we would like. Uh, an occupational hazard of what we're doing here is, is that you trade out of ideas because we believe very strongly that you only really make money selling the stock. It's a paper gain until you lock in some of that profit. But that you let your discipline go in terms of the quality or the valuation discipline of the new stocks that are coming in because you simply can't find them in the current environment and therefore actual total returns suffer in the next three to five year period for investors. We're very conscious of that. There are ideas out there, we can still find them. Areas like interdealer broking or ICAP, we're able to add to the portfolio. Some of the food retailers on the high street that have been quite beaten up. But we think we'll make very good returns out of those names. But they are much fewer and far between than they were. And I think we'd be very happy to let cash move up in this environment if we can't find the ideas, rather than try and force money into ideas that actually, frankly, aren't as attractive as those we've seen in the past. And does that mean that you may have to go into a really unloved stock, like something like Trinity Mirror, um, because that creates more value opportunity over a period of time? That's a great example of a stock where actually we've seen a huge rally from its low share price lows, but it still trades on a PE of four or five times, a very lowly valuation in the context of, of a market average 12 times, let's say. Um, we still think that business has quite a long way to go and it's not one of the ones we're worried about rotating it per se. You might look at that and say, well, would you not, on that average valuation, would you not want to rotate some of the money into that, buy a bit more even though it's a bit higher? That still seems a compelling return. And we do think about that, actually, whether or not we'd look to concentrate the portfolio into the ideas that remain genuinely, significantly uh, undervalued. There's risk with that as well. You have to maintain a diversified portfolio. But we think in that context that actually, as I say, several of the names within the portfolio still look quite attractive and have some way to run. I suppose Trinity Mirror is a classic uh, contrarian idea. Is, is this the typical sort of stop that you're looking for? We are looking for those kind of ideas, classic contrarian ideas. I think that kind of sums it up. We're looking for things that are deeply, deeply out of favour. And I'm not uh, I think within a recovery fund, that's exactly what you know, does what it says on the tin. 
I think Trinity Mirror has a confluence of factors that people really dislike. There's the cyclical factor, advertising, spend being reduced quite aggressively, and there's the structural factor. Of course, we all understand people won't consume the same number of newspapers in the next 10 years than they did the last. And those two things really, really scare people. And it's, we frequently find in those kind of ideas where there is so much fear that you get the most attractive valuation opportunities. There's also risk, so you have to be careful you don't end up in you know, the dreaded value trap. But the opportunities there to make money, dramatic amounts of money in an unleveraged way, I think are manifest and, and, and we relish those opportunities. Nick, one of the things you mentioned earlier was M&A activity. Do you think it will increase in the current climate? I think the jury is very much out because one of the things that we've seen, if you look back over a long enough time period, is that M&A, be it in volume terms or in value of the M&A, correlates very, very highly with the stock market. Um, company managers are uh, slightly unfortunately bad fund managers. They want to do more deals when times are good, but prices are higher as a result. And they're much more cautious about doing those deals when bargains are available, but times are uncertain. Today, the market has rallied up and we've seen tentative signs of M&A picking up, but we haven't seen the volume or value that you might expect at these kind of market levels, which of course feels a bit strange because balance sheets are much better. There's quite a lot of cash sat on the sideline waiting to be invested. But managers are uncertain there's demand out there for that investment and therefore they don't want to go and do the deal and look very silly. You know, the, the lessons of the deals that were done in 2006, 2007 are still reasonably fresh in the mind. So I think we are waiting to see which happens, whether or not the market comes down and managers' concerns are proved right, or whether or not actually they get the confidence to go ahead and do some of these bigger deals. And you see that perhaps moving into that frothier period we talked before, uh, where, which is typically associated with quite high levels of M&A. I wanted to go on to talk about uh, the relationship between balance sheet strength and dividends. Many commentators say that balance sheets have improved since 2008. Do you think that will benefit dividends over the coming years? Yeah, dividends are the other side where you're seeing the payout. So um, you know, we've touched on before this improvement in the balance sheet, meaning that people are sat on the, the sidelines when it comes to things like, things like M&A and organic investment. But I think because they're uncertain about, managements are uncertain about the, whether the demand exists out there to take up that new supply, that new investment, actually one thing they are doing is that they're beefing up dividends in the interim. There is a feeling that in an uncertain environment, actually uh, that cash in hand is very valued by investors. And they're right, it's a low income world, one where a higher dividend is, is very prized by investors. And we're seeing that from businesses where you, know, you don't necessarily have to see dramatic growth we just went through a period where cash was so constrained and balance sheets were so the kind of myopic focus for a period of four or five years that now with fortress balance sheets or certainly much, much better financial positions, we're able to increase our dividend well ahead of earnings in many cases. So if you looked in the insurance sector, stocks like Legal and General or Old Mutual, where you're seeing very substantial dividend growth ahead of earnings and even special dividends, there's a lot more of that happening. And I think we would welcome that within the context of a prudent balance sheet. That's something we definitely want. And we'd much rather that than rash investment in M&A, albeit one at the expense of the other is never a good thing. You must invest in the existing business and ensure the franchise survives as well as paying out a reasonable dividend. And whilst we're on the subject of dividends, I'd be interested to know your views on the relationship between the absolute level of dividends and, and dividend growth, particularly if we move into a higher inflationary environment over the next few years. Yeah. Um, what's your view on that? Guarding that ability to grow the dividend in a more aggressive inflationary environment is something that's incredibly important. I think we're very conscious 
of what is going on with quantitative easing and with low uh, interest rates globally. I think there is a great school of thought, you know, certainly when you're thinking about the probability weighted impact of whether or not that leads to higher inflation in the future, um, we're very cautious. We think you should be considering that. And the ability to grow the dividend obviously is a huge strength of equities, uh, that ability to kind of in real terms to cope with potentially higher levels of inflation. So I think managements are looking at that. They are conscious of that. Um, we would ask that they don't feed the rope out too aggressively in the interim. Um, we're looking for that kind of balance and we're continuously thinking about you know, absolute levels of dividend and dividend growth. I think investors, as investors in individual funds, the absolute dividend is very, very important day one, the yield of your investment, the yield of your fund or the yield of the company you're buying. But every day after that, the thing that you're most focused on is the growth in that distribution, the cash payout, and that's something we focus on too. I wanted to go on to talk about stocks and sectors. Let's start in the banking sector. Could you help our viewers understand why you've got so much capital deployed in that part of the market at the current time? I think one of the things that's quite interesting about banking is, is that I, I've, I've talked before about cyclical and structural concerns. I think a lot of what we see within banking we feel is cyclical and not structural. There is a kind of structural element to regulation. Regulation is tightening up versus the last 20 years and that will reduce the level of returns. But frequently people use the regulation stick to uh, beat investments to say you can't make a, a good return from the equity. Of course that's not true if you look at utilities over the last 10 or 15 years. It's been an incredible performing sector and yet they're one of the most heavily regulated of any investments in the market. When we look at banking today we think there are lots of things that actually are typically attractive to investors very high barriers to entry. You know, there are only four or five guys doing the vast bulk of lending in the UK, so there's a nice oligopoly to that. Um, much better behaviour, the competitive dynamics have settled down and they have no interest of fighting each other over the, the incremental pound. Um, lots of things that we think are, 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 are interesting. New managements, better balance sheets. We think the risk piece is the one thing that people are completely missing. People have become much more sanguine about the level of profits these businesses can make and they think they are a bit higher than today. But it's the risk everyone still thinks is nebulous, uncertain. These are the words I hear a lot. When you go and do the detailed work and look at the balance sheets of these businesses, the reduction in toxic assets, the increase in liquidity, the improvement in the funding balance of the business, they're dramatic. It's light and day versus five or six years ago. And that's the bit that I think is being completely missed by other investors. And I think people will look back in five years and say, actually, these were perfectly investable and really quite attractive stocks to be involved with. Let's move on to the pharmaceutical sector and specifically AstraZeneca and GlaxoSmithKline where there is a perception of a patent cliff in the market and also the lack of development of new drugs. What's the opportunity for you here? People do talk a lot about the patent cliff and the lack of opportunity of new drugs and we've often made the analogy, as other managers have, to be fair it's not a new one, of tobaccos of 10 or 15 years ago. People are very focused then on the litigation impact and the negative health implications of smoking. But people miss the huge pricing power, the brand awareness, the incredibly persuasive cash dynamics of those businesses. Today with pharmaceuticals, we, we feel a kind of similar, I wouldn't like to stretch the analogy too far, but a similar situation where actually people are very focused on the patent cliff. They're very focused on the pricing pressures of austerity that that creates from governments down on the, the drug companies. But what they're missing, of course, is the incredibly high barriers to entry, the incredibly high levels of cash generation, the fantastic patents that already exist, and the fact that new drugs are being invented just more slowly than the past. And for those, I think that the compelling piece is you pay an incredibly low valuation. You know, something like a GlaxoSmithKline 
people were convinced that that was a, a miracle company 10 years ago and you paid a P of 35. Today, many of the reasons people loved it 10 years ago are exactly the same, yet you can buy it on a P of 10 and a dividend yield of five with a very, very robust balance sheet. The risk piece is very low in that regard. And I think that is compelling. Um, we don't know when we'll get paid back for that. It may well be that it's a five or 10 year investment, but one that we think will pay back handsomely. Nick, we started the conversation talking about current levels of market frothiness. How do you see the equity market developing over the next three to five years? We do think there's opportunity. I still look at sectors, predominantly consumer-facing sectors in the UK, those that are very domestically oriented with less overseas earnings where people are very concerned about that, or financial-related sectors. And I still think there is a, a, a great deal of positive return to be made out of those stocks. But I think they have become much more narrow. I think there are some expensive sectors in the UK today. And I think it's interesting to see how this plays out. The concentration of the index is one that means that the impact of what happens to commodities versus financials, say, will have a very dramatic impact on the returns from the 100, given some of those very, very large stocks. And we don't really want to make big calls on that. We want to do everything kind of stock-specific bottom-up. I suppose if I were to put it in context, we look at long-term valuations and we say, what does the Graham and Dodd or the Schiller PE, the cyclically adjusted PE, tell you about the returns you make as an equity investor putting money into the market today? And we think it tells you you're going to make slightly less than long-term equity returns, so about 6% per annum for the next 10 years. We're looking to outperform that in a recovery style by two, potentially more like 3% per annum, which would make a 9% return over the next 10 years. And I think that is something that if you look globally at other asset classes, the kind of returns you can make, that is actually very, very attractive. And I'm very comfortable investing uh, my ISA and my wife's ISA in this kind of style of investment. As a value investor, I think that sounds like a, a glowing endorsement of the opportunity set. Nick Kirridge, thank you very much. Thank you. Any views and opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals and are subject to change. Where individual securities are mentioned, they do not necessarily represent a specific portfolio holding and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase or sell. Please be aware that past performance is not indicative of future performance. The value of an investment may fall as well as rise and you may get back less than you invested. Returns on equities cannot be guaranteed. Equities do not provide the security of capital characteristic of a deposit with a bank or building society.